Hey, uh, if you would, take your Bible and go to Romans chapter 9 with me. Uh, we kind of uh, took a little bit of a kind of a, a alteration, of course, and we had been in Romans chapters 1 through 8. It was a great study. We went over to Romans 13 for a little bit, and now we're going back on track. Romans chapter 9. This is the beginning of a really challenging journey for us as a church, but it's so important. It's so rewarding. And Romans chapters 9 through 11 classically are like one of the hardest places in your Bible to understand. So we're going to go through it really slowly and methodically together, and it's going to be life-changing for all of us. I'm very, very excited about it. And it really helps to understand this section of Romans to look at the very last section. Look at this up on your screen. The very last two verses of Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this, No matter what comes, we will always taste victory through Him who loved us. Didn't you love that last song we sang? The the overwhelming, the uh, never-ending, reckless love of God. Uh, It's so great, so incredible. We're going to be talking about that this morning. He said, For I have every confidence that nothing, not death, life, heavenly messengers, dark spirits, the present, the future, spiritual powers, heights, depth, nor any created thing can come between us and the love of God. And how is the love of God revealed? In Christ Jesus our Lord. That the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, would offer His life as a payment for our sin and our rebellion. So in the Bible, there's no more triumphant declaration than this. All through the centuries, Christians in every culture, and every generation have just like clung to these three verses here and said, Lord, I got to have that for strength and for hope. And all who have Christ, Paul is saying, all who have Christ as their Savior, you are a victor. You are a champion, one and all. And ultimately, we will taste uh, the, the complete victory because of the love of God that Christ shows to us, because the cross reveals, it unveils the limitless, reckless love of God for those who trust Him as their Savior. And Paul says, hey, in, you know, in this world, in this lifetime, we have to face the harsh realities that life is going to be really, really hard sometimes, and we will be persecuted for our faith. We might be unsettled by thoughts of spiritual warfare, uh, an uncertain future, even death. But Paul says that nothing can come between us and the love of God that we find in Christ Jesus. That's the end of chapter 8. Then all of a sudden, Romans chapter 9, there is a hard 90-degree turn. His tone changes abruptly. And one minute, you know, Paul is celebrating the power of the love of Jesus and the next moment, he's just grieving to the depth of his heart. <clears throat> he say, why is that? His own people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, by and large, they are rejecting salvation in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 6 today. I really want to encourage you to pull this up in your phone or uh, you know, if you have your Bible. It's so important to be able to see the text Today, Look what he says here. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Do you hear what he's saying there? It's like, I would rather go to hell myself than to see all my 
fellow Israelites, my, my brethren, miss Christ. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And look at verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. When I read this passage, that's the phrase that just jumps off the page into my spirit. Think about this. The fact that God's chosen people, the, the centerpiece of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the Israelites, by and large, they are rejecting Jesus. This is a very thorny problem for all of us who, who love Christ as our Savior. If the Israelites are not readily accepting Jesus as Savior, what does that say about our salvation? And maybe you're here this morning and you think, yeah, you know what, Les, I can kind of relate to that. You know, I came to know Jesus as my Savior, maybe as I was a child or as a teenager, maybe as an adult. And I, I, just, I just thought there'd be more. You know, I just thought there'd be more power. I thought there'd be more grace. I thought there'd be more love in the church. And I've been hurt by church. I've been hurt by a church leader. You know, I, 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 I pray and I ask God to help me in this situation in my family. I pray and pray and ask God to deliver me from this thing that I've been battling. That's, you know, that you know, Michael mentioned a moment ago, I have, I have a wall, I have a barrier in my life. I just can't seem to break it down and it just feels to me like somehow God's word has failed. And so the title today is My Faith of Failure. Is My Faith of Failure. Imagine how Paul felt, because he, here he goes all around the world sharing the message of salvation by putting your faith in Jesus alone. And time after time, the Jewish people are like, no, we don't want anything of it. In fact, we're probably going to kill you for even saying it. All right. And that happened to him over and over and over again. Think about how unsettling that must have been. You know, I came to know the Lord when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And uh, I hadn't been a Christian for very long. And man, I don't know about you, but <clears throat> man, when I came to know Jesus as my Savior, it wasn't very long for my, my whole family. Man, uh, it wasn't long after me that my sister gave her life to Christ. And then my dad, 38, 39 years old, my dad gives his life to Christ. And, and so I, I, was, I was like a man in a desert who had found water. Man, I just wanted everybody else to have the water, you know? I really was. And so we're going to have a, a thing called a revival meeting at our church. We're going to make a special speaker to town. This is up in Colorado, a little town I lived in Colorado, about the same size as Borger. I'm in ninth grade. I'm a freshman in high school. I've probably only been a Christian maybe about a year. And the, and the, the leader of our youth group says, hey, we want a bunch of people to come to this, this thing. We have this great speaker. <clears throat> so we're going to go, hand out flyers on a Saturday morning. So like, you know, about a dozen of us got together and we got to start going all around uh, different neighborhoods handing out flyers. And we went to okay, it was one neighborhood, it's kind of a rough neighborhood. And I know that because it's the neighborhood I lived in, okay? And we go to this rough neighborhood and we're kind of handing out flyers. And they said, don't, don't, don't really do anything. Just kind of go up there and maybe like leave it on the mailbox or, you know, something like that. Or maybe leave it inside their screen door, but we don't want to disturb anybody. So I go to this one house and I get up on this guy's porch and I'm about to leave the flyer on his mailbox and he opens the door. And I'll never forget this because he's in his bathrobe. Younger guy, probably in his 30s. And I said, oh, I said, pardon me, sir. I was going to leave this for you. 
I you know, just got all my boldness that I could. I said, hey, we're having a meeting at our church. Man, I, and it's gonna, we're having a great speaker to come. I said, man, I'd love for you to come. And he goes, I won't tell you exactly what he said, but he goes, get off my porch and take that with you. Man, I got to tell you, you know, I'm a young, impressionable, kind of new believer. And that really kind of struck me. Like, I, you know, like, I thought Jesus was the best thing I've ever found. And I'd never seen anybody kind of be hostile toward Jesus. And, and it really kind of was unsettling. Here I am, I'm 58 years old. I still remember that very, very vividly. Why is it that sometimes when you share your faith with someone, you know, they, you say, man, I, I just, I love Christ, and they get hostile. Why is it that some people trust Jesus as their Savior, I mean, they're really excited, and then all of a sudden, maybe a year later, two years later, they kind of walk away, and you can't find them anymore. And I know all of us could probably tell one of those stories, and, and maybe you're one of those people, like, man, I've been away from church for a long time. I'm, gonna, I'm kind of coming, by, coming back. I'm kind of dipping my toes in the water again. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. But we know that happens so many times. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with some of those questions, but I have many, many times. And here's the danger. The danger is this. Letting another person's lack of faith rob you of your own confidence in Christ. I want to say that one more time. You never want to allow another person's lack of faith, or you might say failure in the faith, to rob you of your confidence in Christ. You see, for 30 years, Paul traveled the world telling people they could find salvation in Jesus. And his strategy in every city was always the same. The first thing he would do is go to the Jewish synagogue and he would share the salvation message with the Jews first. Romans chapter 116, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, when he says that, you might be thinking, he must be delusional because time and time again, it was the Jewish people who were the greatest opposition to Paul's message. Look at this up on the screen for a moment. Three passages from the book of Acts. I could have, I could have chosen many, many more, but in Acts chapter nine, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill Paul. And night and day, they kept close watch on the city gates to kill him. And then there's Acts chapter 14. Some Jews arrived from Antioch where he was preaching. And after turning the minds of the people against Paul, they stoned him and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Can you imagine being stoned and left for dead? And then Acts chapter 23, obviously he survived. The Jews made a plot together. They swore an oath, binding themselves not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were 40 of them who had made this solemn vow. And so people might say, Paul, how can you believe that Jesus says when God's chosen people, the children of Israel, they're rejecting him wholesale? And if most Jewish people are rejecting the message of salvation in Jesus, how much power could there be in it? You call it the power of God, but the Jews are rejecting it. The Jews were tutored by God for centuries in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And yet somehow, here it is in the first century AD, right hot on the heels of the, the resurrection of Jesus that no one can explain away, and they're hostile to the salvation message. And if most of God's chosen people are rejecting Jesus, why shouldn't everyone reject him? How is it possible that of all the people in the world, 
These people are missing the message. And if we're being honest, that is a thorny problem. If Israel is not believing, does that mean that my faith is a failure? If my Christian friend, my my pastor, my leader walks away from the faith, they, they deconstruct their faith, does that mean my faith is false? And am I a fool to believe that a crucified carpenter in the first century has the power to save my immortal soul? I've shared that with you before. Like, that was a question that just hit me like a brick one day when I was in college. Am I a fool to believe that a crucified carpenter could save my immortal soul? Two things I want us to talk about today. Number one is this. We have to understand that the natural cannot explain the supernatural. All right, look what he says in verses one through three. He says, I speak the truth, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. In other words, he said, I'm making a solemn vow to you. I am telling you the truth. I have this sorrow, I have this anguish in my heart. I wish that I were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. Uh, there was a man one time who went to a diner and he saw a friend there. He wanted to make up some conversation. So he said, uh, hey, uh, I heard some news about your church. He said, I hear you dismissed your previous pastor, but everybody loves your new pastor. What was wrong with your old pastor? And his friend said, well, our old pastor kept telling us that sinners were going to hell. And this man got kind of concerned. He said, well, yeah, that's true though. And so he said, well, what does the new pastor say? He said, well, the friend said, well, the pastor, the new pastor, he keeps saying the same thing. Well, so what's the difference, the friend said. Well, the difference is that when the first one said it, he all sounded like he was kind of glad that sinners were going to go to hell. But our new pastor, when he says it, it breaks his heart. You know, if you read the book of Acts, the Jews had made so many attempts to either kill Paul or destroy his ministry. And yet, he says, my heart is breaking for the very people who are trying to murder me. You, know, you see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Now, the, the idea was in the ancient times that if you gave someone 40 lashes, it would kill them. So if you gave them 39 lashes, they were beaten within an inch of their life. He said it happened to me five times, and it was always the same people. It was always the Jews. You imagine being in a home group with the apostle Paul? your small group, taking prayer requests. He's like, yeah, can we pray for the priest down at the temple? They beat me with an inch of my life last week. I was in intensive care for a couple of weeks, but man, I really want them to get saved and come to Jesus, you know? Oh, it's incredible. It's just incredible. He says, he describes how he feels for those who reject Christ. He says, I have this great sorrow, this unceasing anguish. If it were possible, I would trade places with them. Go to hell if they could find Christ. And I just want to think, I want you to think about this for a moment with me. This is what struck me as I'm reading this passage. How can anyone explain this? How can anyone explain how somebody would have this mindset, this incredible love for people who are their enemies? And didn't Jesus say, love your enemies? And Paul is doing that here. There's no, ex, there's no natural explanation for this. There's only one way this can happen. There has to be a supernatural change in the heart of this, this Pharisee that Paul had been. It's called the love of Christ. Look up on the screen. 
What is the love of Christ? The love of Christ is his willingness to act in our interest to meet our greatest need, salvation, though it cost him everything, even while we were the least worthy of that love. Christ Jesus, in very nature God, worshiped and honored in heaven, and he willingly left the throne of heaven to become something altogether different, a human being, a sinless human being. But on earth, as a man, he was mocked, he was slandered, he was betrayed, he was beaten, and eventually he was murdered, crucified on a cross after a sham of a trial. But he willingly took on the punishment of those who tortured him, who hated him, who murdered him, and somehow Christ's love extends to those most unworthy of such a love. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who murders the prophets and stones to death those messengers sent by God, how often I wanted to gather your children together around me as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling you see the love in the heart of Christ there? That's the love of Christ. There's no human explanation for that kind of an otherworldly, supernatural love. And then someone who is saved, when you give your life to Christ, you say, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my Savior. You're not just saying, hey, I'm going to improve myself and make myself better. You're saying, Jesus, I want you to come into my heart. And when Jesus comes into your heart, what happens? The love of Christ is there. It's there. And so then how does the natural world, the skeptics out there, explain Christian movements who love those who despise them? How does the Christian world explain things like Compassion International, Red Cross, Samaritan's Purse, World Vision, Mercy Ships, et cetera, et cetera, people sacrificing so much to go to hostile countries and in the name of Jesus show love to people who would really rather them be dead? And we support missionaries here at Faith Covenant Church in two countries where the culture they are in, that they're immersed in, is violently anti-Christian. And at any moment, the people there could turn on them. They could lose their lives. <clears throat> One family in another country, they could lose the lives of their two precious children. How do you explain the love that has them there? They risk everything. There's no natural explanation. It's kind of bringing it home a little bit. You know, why does a young couple like John and Susanna drop everything and take all of our kids to Floyd Data, Texas, you know, and spend an entire weekend with those kids? And then on top of that, you say, well, John gets paid to do that. Well, a bunch of adults went with him to help. How do you explain that? There must be something going on that defies natural explanation because weekends are precious. Who gives those away? For kids who are, a lot of times are very ungrateful and kind of smell funny. Who does that? Back in the days when I was a youth pastor, and this still happens to me, but boy, when I was a youth pastor, I remember I would pull up during high school lunch and I'd see all those kids running across the crosswalk there by Pack-a-Sack on their way to McDonald's and Brahms and Sonic. Man, my heart would just break. I would just think about all those kids so far from God not experiencing love in their homes, not experiencing the love of Jesus. And I just know how much, how much hope and how much confidence 
having Jesus in my heart had given me and my heart would just break for those kids. And I would just have this renewed sense of purpose and strength. Like, Lord, I have to do everything I possibly can to reach these kids. And so, yeah, when Jesus comes within, the life of the Christian is Christ in you. And he wants to live his life through you. It's not you making yourself better, improving yourself for God, performing better for Jesus, you know, none of those things. No, it's like, Lord Jesus, I need you in my heart. And you ask him so. Romans chapter eight, Paul wrote this. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ living within does not belong to God. And if Christ lives within you, the spirit is infusing you with life now that you, were right, now that you are right with God. Well, we have to be really honest. I mean, a lot of us have been hurt in church. And we say, you're sitting here talking about this supernatural love of Christ, but some of the meanest people I've ever met have been in church. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's never perfect. The love of Christ is never perfect because it has to come through our mortal flesh first. And so, yeah, the church doesn't love perfectly. The church doesn't always love well, but at least it's there. Where else will you go in this world to find that kind of a love, anything even close to that, as Paul is writing about here? You're not going to find it in a bar. You're not going to find it at a casino. You're not going to find it at work. You're not going to find it on a sports team, an athletic team. Where else are you going to find that? There's only one place where there's at least a chance because there are some people, not all of them, but there are at least some of them who have something of the love of Christ coming out of the pores of their skin. And that is within the church, with God's people, with God's people. But then the question needs to be asked because sometimes People will say, well, I, I was in church, but you know, they didn't love me well, so I'm not there anymore. What about you? <laughs> Is your life showing this supernatural, otherworldly love of Christ? Because you know what? It's not, <laughs> you know, you're not going to stand before Jesus and Jesus at the end of your life, he's going to say, hey, well, tell me what everybody else did to you. No, no. Tell me what you did. Tell me how you responded. I want to talk about you. Does your life evidence the otherworldly love of Christ? Do I look at a person or a group that's antagonistic to Jesus the way that Paul did? And do you just long for them to turn for God? You watch the parade. You watch the protests. You see the news stories. Do you long for those people to turn to Jesus? Absolutely. We speak the truth here as, as, as God's people but we speak the truth in love. Paul wrote this to Philemon. He said, I could be bold. I could order you to do what is right, but because I love you, I'm pleading with you instead. And we need this otherworldly love in our lives. We truly do because there's no other place on earth that we can find a love like this. There's an author that I really love a lot. His name is Lee Strobel. He, he grew up an atheist. And he came to know the Lord uh, in his, I think in his late 20s, early 30s. And it radically changed his life. He's a seminary professor now. 
But he has this amazing book, The Case for Grace. I want you to listen to this, though. This is a story from his own life. My father was leaning back in his leather recliner in our wood-paneled den, and his eyes were darting back and forth between the television set and me as if he couldn't devote his full attention to our confrontation. And he would lecture and scold and shout, but his eyes never met mine. It was the evening before my high school graduation, and my dad had caught me lying to him. Big time. Finally, he snapped his chair forward and he looked me fully in the face and his eyes were angry slits and he held up his left hand, waving his pinky and he pounded every word. I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. You imagine having your father say something like that? I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. He paused. He was probably expecting me to fight back, to defend myself, to, to blubber or cry or apologize or give in. But all I could do was glare at him. And after a few tense moments, he sighed deeply. He reclined again in his recliner and he resumed watching TV. I turned and walked out the door. Wow. We're accustomed to having friends and family and classmates. They love us if we're worthy of it, which that's not really love. That's more like bartering, isn't it? They decide what makes someone worthy of their love, and they hold you to their standard. And fair or unfair, it makes no difference to them, but it makes all the difference in the world to you. But we need to know this, that Jesus has never loved you for who you are. He loves you because of who he is. And nothing about the love of God is ever proportional to your performance. God's love for you is unconditional, it's undeserved, and... It's unexplainable from a human perspective. Romans 5.10, while we were still God's enemies, God's son died on our behalf. And we read here about the love of Christ from the pen of Paul. How is that even possible? You see, the evidence of the love of Christ in our world, the lives of those people have a deep faith in Jesus. And our world is cruel. Absolutely. Our world is hard. Amen. But there's no denying that something supernatural is happening within it. We see the supernatural love of Christ in those who call Jesus Lord. And so we know our faith is not false. It's not everywhere, but at least it's somewhere. And that really means a lot. Number two, we have to know that the earthly cannot attain the eternal. Here's what people would say to Paul. Look at verse four. The people of Israel, they've got it all. The sonship, the divine glory, the covenants, the law, the temple, the promises, the patriarchs. Even Jesus himself was Jewish. How could they not be coming to Jesus in droves? I got to go to my 40th class reunion a few weeks, a couple of months ago. And I went to the church you know, where I came to know Christ and I was delivering the flyers for Calvary Baptist Church in Craig, Colorado. It looks exactly the same. In fact, I was sitting in chairs during Sunday school that I had sat in when I was in high school. Okay, it was amazing. We hung out with my youth ministry leaders, two precious guys. One's named Tom, the other guy's named Al and their wives. Man, when we were teenagers, they were like John and Susanna. Man, they were 
they were taking us camping. They were doing stuff with us. And, you know, now here they are. They're around 70 years old. They were just a little bit older than us at the time. But both of these men, they came to Christ as adults. And, man, they fell in love with Jesus. And they are still faithfully serving Christ all these years later. And when the church service started, there were only about 40 people there. You know, the church had been about the size of ours, you know, about 200 or so. But Tom and Al and their wives are up there leading worship and doing all these things, still serving. And I was sitting there, and as I was watching all this go on, I was thinking about my friends from that youth group. And some of them are still in that little town, Craig, Colorado. They're married, they have kids, they have good jobs. They would have so much to offer that little church, but they're far from God. No desire for the things of God. And it really struck me. You see, when I came to know the Lord when I was in the eighth grade, there were three or four guys. They meant the world to me. They were my example to follow. They were true north for me. If I wanted to know what it meant to be a Christian, you know, guys like, you know, Scott and Rusty, man, they were what I wanted to be. And I did that. I did everything I could to be like those guys. And I followed their example. And they were passionate about Christ. They loved the church. Man, every time the church doors were open, you know, if Tom would have said, hey guys, we're going to open up a can of tuna fish. Y'all come watch. Okay, we'll be there. You know, it's like, you know, whatever. And they knew, they know their Bible. They have a great spiritual heritage. They could contribute so much to a church. But I'm not sure that a team of wild horses could drag them to a church right now. And it's heartbreaking waste of potential. That's the way the apostle feels about his, the people of his youth, the nation of Israel. He lists eight advantages. And he's thinking, if these people would just come to Jesus, just imagine what can happen. He said, first, they're the chosen people of God. These descendants of Abraham, God's chosen people. Out of all the ethnic groups in the world, they're the ones that God has focused all of his attention on. The second thing is they were given the glory. In the exodus through the wilderness, a pillar of fire led the people through the wilderness. Then later on, when they built their temple, it says the glory of God filled the temple. This luminous radiance of God filled the temple. These were the kinds of things that they had witnessed. And then they had the covenants, these unbreakable agreements that God had made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God committed himself to do awesome things for and through the Jewish people. And those covenants are still in place today. And then they had the law, the creator, in meticulous detail says, this is how I have designed you. This is how life will work for you. If you want to prosper, you want to succeed, follow my law. And they do. And when they do, they succeed. They prosper. But no other ethnic group on earth had anything even close to this kind of a resource. We call it the Old Testament. Then they had the temple worship, the Jewish temple, one of the most awesome buildings ever built by man. And it was funded by King David. He gave what would be equivalent to hundreds of billions of dollars to build this temple back in the BC era. And it was the center of the most sophisticated religious system the world had ever seen. There were pilgrimages, there were festivals, there were celebrations, there were these elaborate worship experiences. It was truly awesome. 
They had that. And they had the, they had the promises. You look through your Old Testament, the fantastic promises that a day is going to come when the Jewish people will lead the world. Those promises are still there and God is working to fulfill them. And they had the patriarchs, those tremendous names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even David and Moses, people all over the world of all the great religions still revere these names. And then eighth, Jesus himself, the Messiah, had come from Israel. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, traces his human ancestry to the Jewish people. Look at verse 5 where Paul says, the Messiah who is God over all forever praised. This is one of the most clear and definitive identity statements of Jesus anywhere in your Bible. And more literally, it means Christ is God over all, blessed and praised forever. New Living Translation says this, Christ was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned, and he is God. Mm. Jesus is not just a gifted man. He's not just a good man. He's not just an enlightened man, as some might say in other world religions. This man was born from the nation of Israel, and he is God himself in human flesh. And somehow, in Paul's day, so many could not see it that this man was and is their Messiah. Almost inexplicably, they're blind to the truth with so much just handed to them. How could they miss it? How could they miss it? A reasonable, per- a reasonable person looking at the Jews rejecting Jesus would say, this doesn't make any sense. And it reminded me of Isaiah chapter 55, where the Lord says, my thoughts are not like your thoughts. Your ways are not like my ways. And just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I don't know if you've ever done that. I do this all the time. I just think to myself, God, this makes perfect sense, you know, for you to do this, this way. God, just perfectly natural, perfectly reasonable for me to expect you to do this or that. And then that doesn't happen. And I get really upset and you know, really discouraged. But, you know, if salvation made sense to you and me, it really wouldn't be much of a salvation, would it? Any salvation that has a reasonable human explanation would not need God at the heart of it. There are billions of people around this world today who are doing everything they can to perform and improve themselves and somehow make themselves worthy of God. Working and working, performing and performing, trying to you know, earn God's favor, earn God's love. Why? Because that's the way our families have taught us what love is. You earn it. It's, you get it when you're worthy of it, which we already talked about. So the Jews had all the earthly advantages, but here's the principle. The earthly can never attain the eternal. If it were somehow possible for a person to make themselves good enough for salvation for heaven, a man-powered salvation is a salvation that someone could take some personal pride in accomplishing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, God chose what the world looks down on and despises and thinks is nothing in order to destroy what the world thinks is important. 
This means that no one can boast in God's presence. But God has brought you into union with Christ Jesus. And as the scripture says, whoever wants to boast must boast about what the Lord has done, not what I have done. And you may have someone in your life right now that you feel kind of about them the way Paul felt about his Jewish family. This doesn't make sense. You think about the material help they had, the things they've been taught, the things they've seen. You know, when they were young, they, they saw so much in the life of the church. They experienced so much. They were, they were taught so much. How could they not be walking with Jesus today? It just doesn't make any sense. And can I just tell you, as a pastor, I've asked myself that question so many times. When people walk away from the life of the church, it just breaks your heart. If you have someone like this in your life, they just bewilder you, they break your heart, you're in good company. God had invested in the people of Israel for centuries, and yet Israel proved to be faithless. Isaiah 65, I held out my hands all day long to a disobedient people who walk in a way that isn't good. You ever noticed how that feels when you have somebody who's walking away from Jesus? And you're like, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. And I'll be there to pick up the wreckage when it's time. Because I've done it before. They're walking in a way that isn't good following their own inclinations of people who continually provoke me to my face. Wow. And I'm sure there are people here this morning who are grieving over a loved one who's lost to God. And someone you love is, you know, trending away from Christ and anguish is always there in your heart like a deep knot because you see them drifting into destruction, separating from God. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, you know, that's really, that's really me. I'm the one who's trending away from God. I'm trending away from Jesus, separating from the things of God. Notice what he says here. You're walking in a way that isn't good. You're walking in a way that isn't good. Come back to the Lord. He loves you. Come back. A.W. Tozer said this, Many things about our salvation are beyond our comprehension, but they're not beyond our trust. In matters of salvation, we can't always know God's plans or his purposes, his timetables, but we never want to allow someone else's lack of faith to cause us to lose confidence in ours. Isaiah 55, the words that I speak will not return to me empty. They accomplish what I desire and they succeed in doing what I send them to do. As Paul said, it is not as though God's word had failed. I, I, I know I'm going a little long this morning, but I got I to tell you a story. <laughs> my grandfather, my grandmother, uh, I, I, you know, German family, uh, it was my Oma and my Opa were my grandparents. My Oma, I called her Omi, she loved the Lord. She always went to church. She's Lutheran, but she always went, to, she always went alone. My grandfather wasn't interested in spiritual things. And neither were three of her four children. Three of her four kids, they dropped out of church life as soon as they were old enough. And one of those was my dad, Fred Sharp. When he was 16, 17 years old, he's like, Mom, I don't want anything to do with church, you know, and he kind of went a different direction. Dad, it's really important to remember, by the way, that 
in spiritual things, as goes the father, so goes the family. It's never as goes the mother. So many dads kind of leave the spiritual side of the family up to the mom. As goes the father, so goes the family. That was definitely true in my dad's family. Well, I know it weighed so heavily on my grandmother that, you know, her kids and her husband didn't know Christ as Savior. And I, and I remember one time, I went to church one time as a kid. We went to Austin for Easter, and my Omi, she said, I want everybody to go to church. She wanted her kids to hear the gospel, you know, one more time. And we all loaded up and went to church, and I was scared to death because I didn't know what people did in those buildings, all right? And then uh, I remember the day that I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was 13, 14 years old. As soon as we got home, my dad got on the phone, he called Omi, and he told her, and she was thrilled to hear that news. There was one person that I know my Omi prayed for who wasn't saved. Because as time went on, all of her kids came to know Christ as adults. It was really awesome to watch how it changed our family. But there was one person in our family who never came to know Christ as Savior. And that was Opie, my grandfather. My junior year of high school, one night, Omi sat up in bed and she said, Taylor, something's wrong. And she laid back down. She was gone. She died so suddenly. I was a junior in high school. Died of heart failure. Well, Opie, my, my grandfather, he was a hard man. <laughs> if you've seen that movie, Smoking the Bandit, uh, Buford T. Justice, Jackie Cleason's character, that was Opie. I mean, that's, I thought they had like, you know, used that Opie as a character study for Buford T. Justice, all right? But when we got to Austin, we walked in that house, Opie was as broken a man as I have ever seen. I've been in the ministry for 35 years now. I've dealt with a lot of families who've had a lot of grief and a lot of heartache. I have yet to see anybody who was grieving the way my Opie was. It really shook me. He was weeping. He was wailing. He was making no sense. It was, it was awful. It was terrible. All the kids were upset. My dad was upset. You know, Paul said to the Philippians, he said, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. But Opie had no hope. Opie had never trusted Jesus as his Savior. There was no spiritual life there. And so he had never had anything. So he had no hope. Well, so then, you know, we had the funeral, et cetera, et cetera. That event prompted my grandfather to begin seeking the Lord. Just out of love for my grandmother, he wanted to honor her. And so he began attending church with one of my uncles. He gave his life to Christ. He was baptized in his 60s. Isn't that awesome? And he bought a thick study Bible. And when Opie died, my dad was going to speak at his funeral. And he said, Les, come here, I want you to see this. And he opened up Opie's Bible. And there in the margins of his Bible were like hundreds and hundreds, you know, page after page. There were just notes that he had written, things he was writing. He was always studying his Bible. I talked to one of my uncles recently when one of my aunts died. And he said, yeah, he said, Man, when, when your grandfather uh, came to know Christ, he studied his Bible every day. He said, I have never seen a man change like he changed. So I believe that my Omi's prayers were answered. Just not in her lifetime. But it's not as though God's word had failed. It's not as though God's word had failed. All right, let's pray together. <clears throat> with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to ask you to consider the love of God this morning. This incredible love of God that makes it possible.
for so many incredible, supernatural, amazing things to happen. They don't always happen the way we planned. They don't always happen according to our timetables. It certainly wasn't Omi's timetable. But I know that my Oma and my Opa are together in glory together because of the grace of Jesus. And so I want to ask you this question this morning. Have you ever opened your heart to the love of Christ fully, to the fullest, and said, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. I trust you as my Savior. And here in a moment, John and I will be down here at the front and maybe, uh, maybe some others, but we're, we're going to be here. We're here for you. We want to we pray with you, answer your questions, and just show you what it means to have Christ as your Savior. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you today. Maybe the love of God has felt so distant from you. We're here for you today. And I want to pray for you right now. Lord, I just want to come before you today and I just ask you, Jesus, that if there might be somebody here for whom you feel so distant, so far away, I just pray, Lord, that you would just open their eyes to see today the incredible things that you're doing in their life, the things you're doing around them, that the love of Jesus is near. And so, Lord, I just pray that they'd be able to see that today. And Lord, for all of us here today, Lord, if we, if we begin to lose our confidence, Father, because of someone else's faith or someone else's failure, I just pray, Lord, that you would fix our eyes back upon Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith.